0: Morning, church. So glad we can have our youth group join us for service today. Also, uh, for us to partake in communion together. Scripture reading for today comes to us from Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through 25. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, And the disciples sent out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Truly I say to you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: think a mic. All right, there you go. Ah. One more time. Good morning. Thanks for the energy. Give them a few minutes or seconds here. I also wanted to welcome those who are watching from home. I think a few of our members are still sick, recovering from home. So if you see me on the screen, give me a friendly wave. Uh, Nice that they can join us this morning. And... We have the youth with us today, so um, instead of me continuing with our series in the Book of Acts, I, I decided to have us focus on the topic of a communion together uh, so that we can be refreshed in our understanding before we actually partake in it as a church. You know, uh, when I was a young believer, I, I personally had a really hard time understanding why we had to take communion Uh, because most of the time it just seemed like an empty ritual or tradition I I just didn't see any value in it and I didn't it didn't help that the kind of bread the church served was very dry and tasteless and the amount of juice they served to each person was so small it was never satisfying it's like what is this what kind of meal is this? That is my usual sort of response. And I'm assuming that many of you have felt like that, uh, so you, you relate, you know, to my frustrations, and, and maybe you still do. And if that's the case, I'm hoping that the message will help you sort of change your mind okay, and uh, help you appreciate uh, the Lord's Supper a little bit more uh, than before. The first thing I want you to notice today is that Jesus is not against traditions and customs. You know, to be sure, the Bible does speak out against you know, empty ritualism or traditionalism, but that does not mean that we are to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, right? Because that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says in our passage today, where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. This means that he's expressing his desire to practice a very old Jewish tradition that's been around for centuries. And what I'd like you to see today is how Jesus takes this old Jewish Passover tradition and gives it a newer meaning, a, a richer meaning. He essentially reshapes the Passover and makes it into what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. And he expects his disciples to take part in this meal even after he dies and is no longer with them. And that really is the only reason why the church has kept this practice since Jesus' death. That's the only reason because Jesus himself instituted this meal. And the church throughout history, in response to that, has has rightly designated this meal to be called a sacrament, because it's it's, it's a visible outward sign and symbol that points to an inward grace that God gives to us. That is the basic definition of a sacrament. And I mention this to you because I want you to know that God does value certain customs and signs and symbols. He doesn't say, all these are empty and ritualistic, so just don't bother with them. He doesn't do that, okay? There are certain signs and symbols he greatly values. And if we're to be honest with ourselves, I think we'd all say, "I, I get it, because we all essentially value customs and signs and symbols it just depends on what they are. We all have those things we value. You know what we tend to do though as sinful people is we tend to overvalue the signs and symbols that the world celebrates. You know in in I guess in this social media age many people covet the check mark sign next to their name because that is a status symbol of the day, right? If you have that that means you're you're something else. Like you're, you are popular. Uh, we all know what those kind of signs and symbols are. Right? These are the things that the world values. And as Christians, we ought not to overvalue these things. The problem we have is we actually overvalue those and we undervalue what God values, such as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we have before us. And you, need, you really have to realize that about ourselves. So, Lord willing, I want to try to grow your appreciation for this sacrament, right? Not not just the external form of it, but the substance of it as well. I think we have to be mindful that God holds these two things together, the the substance and the form, okay, together. You have to embrace them together. We can't just be like all about substance without, you know, these God-given forms. God brings these two together, right? For instance, you need to see that there's something wrong with a culture that preaches Jesus without preaching a real commitment to His visible church, which, which is the structure, the form. Right? Love for Jesus means right. Love for Jesus is the substance. Right. Love for His church and being part of the church is the form. You have to embrace these two things together. Right? Another example would be. You know, we can't just be preaching about love between men and women, right? We also have to be celebrating marriage, the form. You can't, you can't just have one without the other. You've got to embrace the two uh, to make sense of Jesus' teaching. In the same way, unless the Lord says we can do without outward forms altogether when it comes to remembering his death and resurrection, we need to learn how to appreciate the Lord's Supper and seek its blessings as the church. Right, that's my just main point, one of the main points I want to make today, right, so that you can receive the additional teaching that I'm about to give to you. The, the simple outline of the message is this, and I, I will be brief today. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to uh, go too long. Uh, part one I want us to think about what the Passover was. What kind of of meal was this? And then part two, how is the Lord's Supper different from the Passover? And then part three, how is the Lord's Supper meant to shape us? Because it is meant to shape us, right? It's meant to change us. So let's look at the Passover uh, as we begin. Uh, It's important to know what the Passover was because the Lord's Supper is rooted in this particular Jewish tradition. The Passover was a a huge deal for the Jews because it signified God's amazing deliverance from slavery from Egypt. It's a massive event in their history. You know, God, if you don't know the story, God sent a plague that was to kill every firstborn. And the only way the Israelites could survive is if they slaughtered an unblemished lamb and pour its blood over their doorposts. And God would see the blood of the lamb, and he would literally pass over their homes and spare them from death. But God also gave them specific instructions on how to prepare the lamb and what foods to eat during this Passover meal. So essentially, God established a food culture, that is practiced even today among the Jews. Let me give you a flavor of what takes place during a typical Passover Seder, okay? as they call it, the Jewish Passover Seder. right? I'm, I'm reading from the Mishnah, which is uh, rabbinic literature, and uh, it reads like a catechism for uh, Jewish children. It's customary for the youngest child to present uh, and recite these questions. Let me just read three of them. Question one. Why is it that on all other nights during the year, we eat either leavened bread, right, the bread that rises, or matzah, right, the bread that's like cracker? But on this night, we eat only matzah. Well, the answer is because our ancestors could not wait for their breads to rise when they were fleeing slavery in Egypt, and so they were flat when they came out of the oven, and so they're... You know, that's part of their custom. That's their history. They're recalling their history. Second question. Why is it that on all other nights we eat all kinds of vegetables, but on this night we eat bitter herbs? The answer is to remind us of the bitterness of slavery that our ancestors endured while in, in Egypt. One more question. Why is it that on all other nights we dine either sitting upright or reclining, but on this night we all... Recline. Well, answer, we recline at the Seder table because in ancient times, a person who reclined at a meal was a free person while slaves and servants stood. Right? And this is how Jewish families would train their children. And this is the kind of meal that Jesus probably had with his disciples. But it wasn't exactly the same kind of meal because Jesus, once again, He takes a old Jewish custom and he reshapes it to be something new, right? Just as believers no longer keep the Jewish Sabbath on Saturdays, but now celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday, just as the sign of the covenant is no longer circumcision, but is baptism, the church is to no longer celebrate the Passover, but is now to gather around the Lord's Supper instead. Jesus gives these things new meaning. So part two. How was the Lord's Supper different from the Jewish Passover Seder? Uh, let me point out a few things. Notice in the Lord's Supper, there was bread and wine. Right? But there, there is no lamb mentioned. I'm, I'm not sure exactly if it was actually served. Maybe it was. But there, there's no lamb mentioned. There's, it's like, where's the meat? You know, why, why didn't Jesus say, you know, pick up, a, I guess, a piece of lamb, you know, and say, this is my body. He didn't do that. He took, he took bread instead. So where's the lamb? Well, I, I believe it's because Jesus wanted to show his disciples that he was the lamb that was to be slain. It was to show them that the Passover lamb that the Jews were eating throughout their history was meant to point to him, right, and that the blood that was smeared on their doorposts was essentially... His blood that was shed for them. So it's just, there's no lamb mentioned. He's the lamb. Also, the bread and wine are given a richer meaning, right? The bread signifies the body of Christ. The wine signifies the blood of Christ. But it's worth thinking about why it was said that they were to drink of his blood. Because you might not be aware of this, according to Old Testament law, drinking blood was banned. It was illegal for Jews to drink blood. But Jesus commands, nevertheless, to drink, and he says, this is my blood. So it must have been shocking to Jewish ears to hear that. You know, and of course, literally, it wasn't his blood, but still, I mean, I think it would have been shocking to hear what. Why, why are you saying drink blood when clearly the Old Testament law prohibits drinking of blood? Well, it's meant to signify the complete union and intimacy that we're to share with Christ. That right? we're to identify with him in such such a way. This meal was also meant to demonstrate the oneness. We share, right, not just with Jesus, but with one another as fellow believers in Christ, right? Uh, I want you to be aware that originally one cup was passed around. And so there were not individual cups. It was one cup. Germs or no germs, there's one cup. You don't, you don't think in ancient times there were Germs. It's probably worse than now, you know? They knew that, but they shared one cup. And I know that most of us would never take communion if we passed around that same cup. Here, here, here. It's okay. I'm too sinful today, you would say. (laughs) I refrain. I refrain from taking. (laughs) But I'm hoping that at least our leaders would be comfortable enough soon, right, to, to share. Remember we used to do that pre-COV, we, we share one cup, and some of you thought it was weird. I had, I had one, one brother mention, Pastor Paul, why do you do that? you make making our church look like a cult, right? <laughs> So I had to kind of tell him generally, oh, that's just, you know, why do you think that way, you know? It must be because you're too worldly, <laughs> you're too worldly-minded. One commentator writes, drinking the cup of someone meant entering into a communion relationship with that person to the point that one shared that person's destiny, good or ill. I think that's worth considering. I remember uh, a few weeks ago, my brother-in-law visited, and we were at Seoul eating, um, I forget what it was, we were sharing something. We were sharing, like, an a, a item of food, and uh, I basically said, oh, yeah, let's, let's share together, and there was, like, really, you know, there was some awareness that we'd be sharing germs, but it was like, let's do it together, right? And, and the, the spirit was, we live together, we die together, right, brother? <laughs> that, that was the spirit, and it just seemed, it seemed right. I had to say that at the time. Right? That, that's, that's closeness of family. You know, we expect that from family. So every time you take the cup, right, you're saying, I am willing to share in the sufferings of Christ and follow him even unto death. But not only that, I am willing to share in the destiny of these brothers and sisters of mine. Is that how you view the church as your family? That's how Jesus viewed the church. Also, in the Lord's Supper, the substitutionary nature of Christ's sacrifice is made more explicit. You know, the, the Passover, it hints to the fact that there is a lamb substitute, right? But it's not as explicit. But in the Lord's Supper, it's explicitly confessed that we are sinners, right? In need of Jesus to be our substitute lamb. I'm not sure if you ever thought of love in these terms, but it's been said that the best form of love is always substitutionary in nature. The love is substitutionary. I know that doesn't sound all that romantic, (laughs) but it's an important concept to consider. One pastor put it this way, um, and I'll I'll give you also an illustration for the sake of our teenagers here. I think you'll relate to this really well. But uh, he said... You, you have never loved a broken person or a guilty person or a hurting person except through substitutionary sacrifice. And here's what he means. Right? Think about this example. You were the cool kid in high school, right? Are you? Well, let's assume that you are, okay? You're the cool kid in high school, and whenever you step into the cafeteria, you would notice all the geeky kids... haven't experienced puberty yet sitting in the corner all by themselves and nobody likes them or wants to be like them they're treated they're treated like lepers essentially but the gospel compels you that was an accident but the gospel compels you to reach out to them and so you do then what happens well of course the mean girls come over to you and say what are you doing with them? You can't be one of us and also be one of them at the same time. If you enter their world, their geekiness will rub off on you. That They might not say that, but that's what they're thinking. Their geekiness will rub off on you and you will become like one of them. That's the mindset, right? And so the lesson is that you cannot truly diminish someone's isolation or brokenness unless you enter into it and without some of it falling upon you. And that's what Jesus did for us when he entered our world. He became sin for us so that we wouldn't have to pay the consequences of our own sins. That's substitutionary love. That's substitutionary sacrifice. That is true love. That's the highest form of love. So, how how is the Lord's Supper meant to shape us then? Well, I want to highlight three things, okay? And there are many more that can be mentioned, but let me just highlight three things for the sake of time. Number one, the Lord's Supper is meant to unite us. There is this unifying power. You know, it's like Jesus, He gave His life for us and He spared us from eternal death and alienation. Through his substitutionary love, therefore what? What should our response be? You know, Charlie didn't mention it today uh, right after praise, but, you know, our worship leaders often say what? Just as God extended grace to you, may you extend grace to those around you, right? Something like that. That's the idea. God has loved you in this way. Why don't you now go and love others in the same way, right? That's the expectation, isn't it? Well, God has loved us with this substitutionary love. Therefore, you now go and why don't you love others in the same manner with a substitutionary love? How? Well, it could be through practicing hospitality, even, you know, through this COVID season. Maybe it's by associating yourself with those who are considered lowly, or those who are considered less popular, those who may ruin your reputation, literally. But it's through those efforts that God, he brings his people together. You know, I also thought it would be helpful to think of the Lord's Supper as this special meal that Jesus invites all of his family members to. You know, this is truly meant to be a special occasion. Think of, think of this picture of Jesus sending out invitations to every family Right? Every individual who's part of his family, no matter where they may be in the world. I think you can relate to this example because don't your parents do this? Right? They they invite you, no matter where you may be in the country. You know, maybe, maybe you're at school, I don't know, maybe you're just working in a different state. But on Thanksgiving Day, right, what happens? They invite you to come and share in this special meal so that they can celebrate together as a family. And even if you're living in a different state or going to school somewhere else, you're busy with your lives, I bet that most of you would do whatever you could do to make it to that special family meal you would never dare say, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with the family is just as good over Zoom. <laughs> I'm going to Zoom in and celebrate. You know, it might be better than not Zooming in, but it's just not the same thing, you see. You know how important it is for you to be there with your family to celebrate as one. And so it is with the Lord's meal. This meal is meant to bring us together as one body, especially because there are differences and disagreements we have, right? But we can still come together because the Lord calls us to and He he unites us through His death and resurrection. So whenever you receive an invitation to come to the Lord's table, I encourage you to to be eager in wanting to respond to it. Because honestly, I mean, think about this. This is the only meal Jesus asks us to take part in as his people. It's the only meal. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is meant to keep us humble. You know, the Lord's Supper has a this this somber element to it, doesn't it? Since it reminds us that Jesus died for the wrongs we committed, It was our sin, it was our guilt, it was our shame that made it necessary for him to lay down his life for us. That's why we we approach the table with humility. You know, we're called to examine our hearts and repent of our wrong, trusting in the Lord's mercies over us. One commentator, it's the same commentator I'm quoting from, uh, he writes, when the Lord's Supper is served at the end of the worship service, people may examine their watches more than their hearts, but Mark's account of the Last Supper should jolt us awake. We should all be humbly aware that if one of the 12 could betray Jesus, every Christian has that potential. We are worthy of the Lord's Supper when we recognize how unworthy we actually are. And we feel its power when we also recognize that Jesus died for us and accepts us in spite of our unworthiness. So the Lord's Supper is meant to humble us in this way, remind us who we are and what we truly need. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is meant to nourish our faith by drawing our attention to the future heavenly banquet that is to be enjoyed in the life to come. It's meant to nourish us. Do you believe that? That as you come, that this table is meant to nourish you. You know, the Lord's Supper looks forward to the heavenly banquet that the Lord is preparing for us, That means that there's going to be no greater meal than the one that we will get to enjoy in heaven one day. I can't wait. But in the meantime, he calls us to gather around a rather humble table consisting of the most common, I would even say most boring food items. (laughs) But, you know, the big reason why the table is so humble is so that this table could be made accessible to everyone, regardless of their social status. In other words, this table is not just for the rich, but it's also for the poor. Anyone can afford it. Right? No one is to be kept away. You know, no one is to be left out. And so for us, this means, I believe, that on this side of heaven... Think about this with me. I think this is important to know. We are not to make our Christian fellowship mainly about the food we serve. Our Christian fellowship is meant to be centered around the Lord primarily, right? And it's meant to be about the people that we're called to share the food with. It's not meant to be about the food primarily. And this is easier said than done because, as you all know, good food is It's so powerful. Good food is wonderful. Good food is celebrated everywhere. Everyone loves good food. You know, everyone's meal of choice has everything to do with the taste and the quality of the food being served. You know, I, I personally believe that everyone essentially has their own version of the Lord's Supper. You know, the meal you choose to have as your very last meal before you die, is guess that that's your Lord's Supper? Right? That's your version of the Lord's Supper. Right? What would that meal be? What would your last meal be? For me, it would be the best quality sushi I could find and a good bowl of banbohe. Right? That, that's my version of the Lord's Supper. That's my best meal. And after that meal, I will be able to die in peace, I think. But in contrast, right, honestly, This is important. In contrast, the Lord's table reminds us that our fellowship is not meant to be mainly about the food being served before us. But rather about the Lord and the hope we have in the life to come, which is sometimes described as the great heavenly banquet that we're to enjoy. That day is coming, but in the meantime, we gather around a humble table. So, brothers and sisters, as you approach this table today, I ask you to come not because the bread is freshly baked and delicious, because it's not. I, ask you not. I ask you to come not because the wine is of high quality. It's not. But I ask you to come in faith. I come to the table trusting that the Lord is good, that he is good, that he delights when his people eagerly respond to his invitation and come together as one, wanting, yearning, desiring to be nourished by his grace more than anything else. And if you're not yet old enough or if you have not yet been through the confirmation process, if you're a youth member, then I, I pray that you would be eager to uh, to go through that process soon and, and uh, take part in this table with the rest of the church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, one of the last things you said to your disciples before you went to be seated by your Father is that they are to love one another as they have been loved by you. And, and the last meal you shared with them was not some individual happy meal, but it was a family-style meal that was meant to display their oneness the unity they share with you and with one another. So may our gatherings, especially the way in which we worship as a body and break bread as one fellowship, properly reflect this unity that you've established through your death and resurrection. Your body was broken so that we could be made one. We thank you for this grace, and we trust in your saving work to bring about a greater unity among us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.